Well, good morning. If you don't know me, I'm very technologically challenged. My name is Steve. I'm on the elder team here and part of the preaching team. And thank you, music, and worship folks for leading us into this. Um, real quick, we're going to do communion at the end of the service. It is going to be different. <laughs> okay, I think we ran out of the, the other stuff. So you guys will be fine. When someone hands you a cracker and some juice, just take it. Okay, can we all do that? Awesome. Well, we're, we're going to get there in a bit. <clears throat> um, I want to echo what Caleb said uh, about the classes coming up. If you are able to make it to one, uh, they really are a fantastic opportunity to learn together. Um, it's a whole lot easier to learn together than to learn solo, I can tell you from experience. So we are in the book of Galatians. And Jen, I didn't tell you this, but I'm going to camp out on that title slide of Galatians alone for a while because I want to do some, some intro. We are going to talk again today about the showdown that happened between Paul and Peter in Galatians chapter 2. It is such a huge event in the Bible. David and I agreed that we would both overlap it. When Paul calls Peter out. If you need a more recent comparison, think Captain America and Iron Man going at it in Civil War. If you don't know, sorry, we're going to keep going. All right, John Stott says this. He says, this is without doubt one of the most tense and dramatic episodes in the New Testament. Here are two leading apostles of Jesus Christ, face-to-face -face in complete and open conflict. It is a big deal. And so I might make sure we have that in our hearts and in our heads, that, that, that when we see this particular passage in Galatians 2, that we, we understand the, kind of the monument of it. But I want to start today by giving an illustration that might help us get to the heart of what Paul is doing with the book of Galatians, with his letter to this church, and in specifically the passage that we look at today. And so, without breaking any HIPAA rules, um, who here has had an MRI? Yep, okay, all kinds of old people. Okay? If you haven't, your time's coming. Okay? Just be ready. MRI stands for magnetic resonance imaging. And you're like, nerd. And I'm like, yeah. Um, and it's a type of scan that uses strong magnetic fields. That's why there's no metal. You got to get rid of it. And radio waves to produce really, really detailed images of the inside of your body. It's, it's absolutely amazing what they do. And so I've probably mentioned this before, but I was painting once. And I reached way out to get that spot on the top of the ladder, and I felt, spell check didn't get this word, but I felt a sproing happen over here somewhere. And I went, oh, oh, that's, that's not good. All right, I'll just put the, let's put the brush away and take it easy for a bit, maybe go in and put the feet up, take an Advil, I'll be fine tomorrow. I was not fine tomorrow, not even close. Um, that didn't help. For the next nine months, I knew something was wrong. And I went to doctors. And some, you, some of you guys are going to be like, yeah, Steve, been there. But I went to doctors. I went to physical therapy. Did dry needling. Have you ever done that? It's terrible. I got, I got massage therapy. I took prednisone. That stuff is terrible. And I was miserable for nine months. Nothing helped. Finally, the doctor said, now that you have wasted all your time and your money on all these things that don't work, let's get an MRI. Again, you guys are all like, mm-hmm. So I got in the tube for the most miserable 30 minutes of my life because it was one of the symptoms of what I was experiencing was I couldn't lay flat. That's the only way to do an MRI. I was, I was 
felt like I was in hell for 30 minutes. And so I got my MRI, and I had an appointment with a surgeon on Tuesday after my MRI. And he brought it up, and he looked at it for two seconds, and he went, what are you doing Friday? He saw instantly what was wrong. Two of the discs in my spine had ruptured and blown out and were causing all kinds of trouble for me. And it needed repair. Surgery that Friday, and here I am, pain-free in this area. We'll talk about the other areas later, but here I'm all right today. And so here's the hypothetical I want to pose to you. What if I finally got my MRI, and you came from my house to dinner that Friday night, and I told you, look, my MRI, I'm all better. <laughs> I've been waiting so long, nine months for this MRI, I finally got my MRI, everything's fine. You would try to be nice because you're all nice people but you would be thinking, you are nuts. The MRI doesn't make you better. At all. It only tells you what is wrong with you. But what if Lori was also there and she said, oh yes, the MRI, it healed my husband. You'd be like, well, she's actually reliable. Oh, that's, and you'd be like, wow, may, maybe. You might start to doubt yourself, but still, the reality, the MRI did not heal me. And you would say, what are you guys talking about? You are idiots. And so my hope with this illustration, it helps you understand what Paul is doing in Galatians and what he's doing when he talks about the law and its purpose. The law, the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament law, whatever, has no ability to save you or heal you. None whatsoever. It can tell you what is wrong with you, but it cannot make you better. So hear me. It does nothing to make you right with God ever. Even without the law, the Bible tells us that we know something is wrong. Early chapters of Romans. Just as I knew something was wrong without the MRI. But once the law showed up, we knew what righteousness required, and we knew we didn't have it. And yet, this was the lie the church that Paul is writing to in this letter was falling into. People were teaching that God's acceptance of them was based on their following laws, regulations, and practices of Judaism. And that is not true. It is a lie. It is why, if you're opening your Bibles and you're anywhere near Galatians 2, which is where we're going to be for a bit today, and you just peek forward to where we're going to be next week in Galatians 3, Paul goes, you foolish Galatians! He goes nuts on them. What? Aren't you supposed to write a lovely, beautiful letter to this church, Paul? No. He goes, you guys are being idiots. And it is his purpose in this book to make sure they understand that they're made right with God by faith in Jesus, not their MRI, not the law. And so, by way of intro, if you are here today and you believe that God accepts you on the basis of anything that you have done to please him, I'm here to tell you, Paul is here to tell you, you are missing the mark. The only way that you are acceptable to God is what Jesus did for you, not what you have done for you. And so, I've titled today's sermon, Called Out, because that sounds good, and it looks good on Facebook and stuff, or The Healing Power of Diagnostic Imaging. That's the nerdy title. 
the ironic, nerdy title. And so last week, David reviewed verses 1 through 14 of chapter 2, a sermon entitled Zero Tolerance, and he said that those entrusted with the gospel of freedom must have zero tolerance for those who divide Christ's family with spiritual slavery. And we got to hear about David's massive high school rebellion when he parked somewhere wrong. I was dying over here when someone said to David Fry, even you, David, <gasps> and sucked all the air. That was, that was fantastic. Oh, it was great. So today, we're going to look at the showdown again. We're going to hear Paul explain why he called Peter out and explain what was wrong in his thinking when he did what he did. And the fact, and this should... This should shake each and every one of us. The fact that even Peter fell prey to the idea that the MRI had any healing power at all means that we can also fall prey to it. And ladies and gentlemen, it's easier than you think. And so I want us to ponder this thought today. So many things tempt us to make our relationship to God and others about anything but Jesus, and it needs to be called out. Here's the thing. We are always, 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 because we're descended from Adam, tempted to think that God loves us because of something about us. And when we think that, we will also believe that God is disappointed in us when we are disappointed in us. We are also tempted to think that God loves the people around us on the basis of how good they are. We are tempted to do this all the time. And then when we decide to love them based on how good we think they are, you see how messed up it is for us to look at ourselves through a lens of our own goodness and to look at others through a lens of their own goodness that we create? So, it's a constant battle to remember that it's all about Jesus. And it's so easy to fall into thinking that our acceptance by God is based on anything but the cross. The death of God's Son is what heals us, not our adherence to some list of rules. The MRI only points out our need, and our need is a doctor, a healer. When we go back to waving the MRI around, it needs to be called out, mostly in ourselves, which is what we're going to do as we close today. And so before we dive into today's, into today's passage, because you might be going, okay, Steve, yeah, but, but the, the law is cool though, right? I mean, they did a movie about it with Charlton Heston, I think, um, are you sure that it's just, that's really its purpose? Well, Paul says it, Romans 3.20, I put it up so you can see it. And by all means, go chase the book of Romans and see this in context, where Paul says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. But, he says, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so note what Paul is saying, works of the law, good things. It's good not to murder, it's good not to covet, it's good not to do all those things. Good things that you might do for others, good things you might do for God. Works of the law are not bad things, but they do nothing to win God's favor. Nothing. Nothing to make us right with God because all the law does is show us what sin is. And so Luther puts it this way. I don't have it up here, but just listen. Luther says, the principal point of the law is to make men not better, but worse. Mm. That is to say, it shows them their sin and that by the knowledge of it, they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken. And by this means, may be driven to seek grace and so come to that blessed Christ. And so with that as our backdrop, you understand, hopefully, the large point that is being made here? Let's take a look at our passage today. Verse 11. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. 
But when they came, the men from James, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And so when Peter first got to Antioch, it says he was eating with the Gentiles. I want to make sure you understand, this doesn't mean that he was just, oh, we're sitting here having a meal when they showed up. The language actually says that he was in the habit of eating meals with the Gentiles. He was in fellowship with them. And David reviewed last week how Peter had a direct message from God regarding the cleanliness of all foods and the acceptance of all types of people. And I want to just quote Acts 10.34 to you, where Peter opened his mouth and said, this is the quote from Peter in Acts, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. That's Peter's quote, direct quote. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. What is going on here? And so Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Why was he condemned? Because he knew he had direct revelation from God that God shows no partiality, but he himself was showing partiality. Why? Well, important folks showed up. They were from James, who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, a giant in the church. But we can tell what happened when they showed up. Acts 15.1 actually tells us that they began to preach, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That was the message that they brought. Evidently, they, were, they, were, they even went further than that and taught that it was improper for believers that were circumcised to eat with and have fellowship with folks that weren't circumcised, even if they'd believed in Jesus and been baptized. And so these teachers showed up, and they got a convert. Peter, you have to understand how nuts this is. The guy lived with Jesus for three years. Peter, who had previously eaten with the Gentile Christians, now withdrew from them and separated himself. And it appears in the language that he did it kind of shamefacedly. One commentator says, the words describe forcibly the cautious withdrawal of a timid person who shrinks from observation. The Peter went, oh, these guys are here. I'm going to go over here. I'm going to eat with these guys. And Paul's charge is pretty serious, but it's very plain. It is that Peter and the others acted in insincerity and not from personal conviction. Their decision to end fellowship, to stop eating with Gentile believers was not prompted by any truth, but by fear of people, by fear of a small group of people. And so the same Peter who denied Jesus because a maidservant asked him about it, now denied him again for fear of the circumcision party. He still believed the gospel, but he did not practice it. His conduct did not square with the gospel. He was being a hypocrite. He knew the MRI was only pointing out the problem, but he joined with the folks that said it did much more. And so verse 13, it gets bad, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. The rest of the Jews followed Peter. It wasn't just Peter doing this. The rest of the Jews and even Barnabas all wound up in a place where they had fellowship together but excluded those that had given themselves to Christ and been baptized but just didn't know the law and the Old Testament the way that these folks did. And so it's important to note that what is happening here, what Paul is detailing in verse 13, is segregation. It is disunity. It is a church split of the highest order. And this is the church, let's be clear, as we just studied in Acts, this is the church where people that followed Christ were first called Christians. John Stott, and if you say, Steve, why you keep 
quoting John Stott because he's amazing and has a great commentary on Galatians. If you want to dive in even deeper, the message of Galatians by John Stott is a fantastic resource for you to really dive into this book. Here's what he says. He says, if Paul had not taken his stand against Peter that day, either the whole Christian church would have drifted into a Jewish backwater and stagnated, or there would have been a permanent rift between Gentile and Jewish Christendom. One Lord, two tables. Paul's outstanding courage on that occasion in resisting Peter preserved both the truth of the gospel and the international brotherhood of the church. The stakes were high for sure. Verse 14, Paul says, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, and if you're highlighting in your Bible, not in step with the truth of the gospel is kind of almost the key center point of this passage. I said to Cephas, to Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, you've been eating with the Gentiles forever. You had the message from God that that was fine and that's all good. If you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force them to live like a Jew? It's a great question. The truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel. Paul says Peter was not in step with it. What is it? It's the good news that we sinners, guilty and under the judgment of God, how do we know we're under the judgment of God? The MRI. The law tells us that. May be pardoned and accepted by his grace. Free, undeserved favor on the ground of his son's death not for any works or merit of our own. Any deviation from this message, Paul has zero tolerance for, as should we. Back to David's message last week. And Peter knew the message of the gospel. And what Paul says to Peter before all of them, he says this before all of them, you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, how can you make them live like that? And so Paul's basic line to Peter is, God did not have fellowship with you on the basis of your race and culture. You were good and devout and all that great, but it has nothing to do with it. So how is it you're basing your fellowship with others on their race and culture? So let's see how he develops it. That catches us up to last week. Verse 15, Paul just imagine him talking to Peter, all right? As we read these verses, imagine Paul talking to Peter and explaining why he's calling him out. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And if you want to read that, we're, not, we're, we're Jewish sinners, not Gentile sinners. That's okay. Verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Are you getting tired of hearing this yet? Great. Because the issue is we don't live like this is true, and it's exactly what Paul is calling Peter on. You might think that this is theoretically and theologically true, but how do you act in step with it or in line with it? Paul makes this point over and over again. The MRI does not make you right. It can't. It won't. But Paul has to keep saying it because it seems that's what we want. We want it to be about our effort. And so he declares that both he and Peter are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles, meaning ethnically they're both Jewish. The Gentile believers are seen as sinners in Jewish social circles. Why? Because they're not circumcised, which is, as David pointed out last week too, kind of one of the basic themes of this book. But in verse 16 there, we see this word justified for the first time in this book. It's the first time in the book of Galatians, in, in the, in the book of Galatians Paul says, 
that we know that a person is not justified by the law. It's only through faith in Christ. And so we have to camp on that word as it just shows up for the first time for a moment. It's a legal term borrowed from the courts. It is the exact opposite of condemnation. To condemn is to declare someone guilty. To justify is to declare him not guilty, innocent, or righteous. In the Bible, it refers to God's act of unmerited favor. He puts a sinner right with himself, not just pardoning him, not just acquitting him, but accepting him and treating him as righteous. And so, Steve, that all sounds good. This is as good a time for, as any for a J.I. Packer quote because he does a great job defining biblical terms. He says, to justify in the Bible means to declare of a man on trial that he is not liable to any penalty, but is entitled to all the privileges due to those who have kept the law. Justifying is the act of a judge producing the opposite sentence to condemnation, that of acquittal and legal immunity. And so God says this to you. Because of Jesus, you are not liable to any penalty. You are treated as someone who kept the law. God the judge pronounces the opposite sentence to condemnation. You are free. Amen? Oh, But on what basis? Justice still needs to be satisfied. How can you just let someone go, God? God says, I didn't just let you go. My son took the punishment that you deserved. Justice was served. God made him who knew no sin to become a sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay. Hopefully you're following. Hopefully you're tracking. But I want you to see something that's interesting that happens in this passage that happens elsewhere in the New Testament as well. Every time Paul would preach this message of justification by faith, he would be criticized with, that is way too easy. It would be like, nope, can't be that easy. We got to do something. We got to at least behave or follow the speed limit or something. It's way too easy to say Jesus did it all. Because here's how this works. We would say in our hearts, when people don't have consequences, they're just going to sin and do whatever they want. Over and over and over again, this is what Paul had to deal with. And so when you share the gospel with someone and they come back to you, well, that sounds too easy, know that you have company. Take comfort that you and Paul share the same struggle. And so Paul deals with this in the next couple of verses. Let's look at verses 17 and 18. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. You can see in Romans, no. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. And this is not an easy couple of verses to, to dissect. So Paul's critics would say, your doctrine of justification through faith in Christ only, apart from works of the law, apart from behavior, is pretty dangerous. It weakens our sense of moral responsibility. See how I said that with my chest puffed up, right? It weakens man's sense of moral responsibility. That resonates in my heart when I say that. We all have it in us. If he can be accepted through trusting in Christ without any necessity to do anything good, you're actually encouraging him to break the law. And people still argue like this today. If God justifies bad people, what's the point of being good? Why don't we just live and do as we please? And so what Paul is saying in response is, if someone who knows they're justified by faith sins, is it because being justified by faith promotes sin? He's saying, no, certainly not, he says. 
But if someone who professes faith in Christ keeps on with the same sinful lifestyle, rebuilding the sinfulness that Christ died to destroy, making no effort to change, it shows that they never really grasped the gospel. But we're looking for an experience, excuse me, we're looking for an excuse to live in disobedience to God. And so fundamentally, after we understand what has been done to save us, we will want to please God, not ourselves. I hope I can just make that statement, and I hope it makes sense. When you've been rescued, you want to please the one that rescued you. And we do that by listening to the spirit he's put in us and loving those around us because of the love we've been given. And if you want to see this more comprehensively dealt with than just a couple of verses, go to Romans 6, where Paul says what? So if grace increases when sin increases, should we just sin more? No, and then he takes the chapter and explains why that's true. And so what comes next is Paul's description of how someone who is justified will view life. So let's look at verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. And so Paul's talking about himself, past tense. He says, before Jesus, I was trying to save myself by keeping the law. But he wasn't living for God. He was being very moral and good, but it was for Paul. He was doing it for a reward that he might get based on his performance. This is what Paul's saying. I used to live like the things that I did were stacking up some sort of... uh, passes for me to somehow, someday, when God looks, goes, oh, my land, look at that pile of good things you've done. Wow. That is certainly more than the other guy. Come on to heaven. That is not how it works. He was being moral and good, but it was for Paul. And he was doing it for a reward that was based on his performance. So Tim Keller, who passed away in 2023, has a quote about this. And it was posted to his page a couple weeks ago. I think his son is still running his page. And it's right here. It's a shocking message, Tim Keller wrote. Careful obedience to God's law may actually serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. Yikes. Wow. A very moral life can be rebellious to God. Ooh. You're like, see, that doesn't sound right. Well, when you go home today after church, pick up any one of the four Gospels and tell me whether or not that's true. You will see it in almost each and every chapter. What Paul is saying is that he died to the law as a way of justifying him, of declaring him not guilty. He discovered that the MRI would never fix the problem. He saw the law and discovered that he could not be acceptable through it, so he stopped living to it. He died to the law as his Savior. And so, if you're following and if you know your Bible well, you know that the next verse is one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture. I mean, if Steve Green made a song out of it, it has to be amazing, right? And... 30% of you know who he is. Um, Verse 20. This, This is Paul explaining what the mystery of his new life looks like. Okay? So Paul's saying, this is what my life looks like now that I've died to the law. The law has no power over me. The only thing it does is condemn me. The only thing it does is tell me what's wrong. Let me explain to you what my life is based on now. Verse 20. I, I, this is Paul talking, have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. I am dead. But Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, because I get up every day and I have to live this life, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live not by some code, not by some set of written, I live it by faith in the Son of God who 
loved me and gave himself for me. If, if you've never attempted to memorize this verse, maybe this is the week to do so because this is what should describe each and every one of us. The life that I live now, I do it by faith in the Son of God who loved me. How much did he love me? He gave himself for me. When I was declared to be guilty, bankrupt, the penalty for my everything I'd done was paid for when he gave himself for me. And I will just be flat out clear with you, it's intimidating to preach this particular verse because there's so much in it and so much mystery in it. What does faith in the Son of God living that way look like? Well, there's so much in the Bible that'll help us. And so this is a statement of what it means to live our lives. If you want to say, is my life, am I living in line with the truth of the gospel, that I am justified, I am treated as if I'd never sinned, I have all the benefits of anyone who's followed the law completely. Now that Christ's life is my life, Christ's past is my past, I was crucified with him. I'm free from condemnation before God as if I had already died and been judged, just as if I'd paid the debt myself, and I'm as loved by God as if I had lived the life that Jesus lived. I am as loved by God as if I lived the life that Jesus lived. I am as loved by God as if I had lived the life Jesus lived. So John Piper puts it this way. He says, you don't attain the benefits of the gospel by doing a little moral cleanup job on your life. You attain forgiveness and joy and peace and power through daily reliance upon Jesus Christ, who loved you and gave himself for you. But that faith, when it is genuine, creates a rhythm of life that is in step with the truth of the gospel. You want to say, what does it look like to live in step with the truth of the gospel? Galatians 2.20, my friends. And when we obey, it's not because we're trying to earn God's approval. It's because Christ is living in us. We can't take any credit for what we're doing. It is all because we're living by faith, and that makes all the difference in the world. Verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, I would throw at all. Then Christ died for no Okay, Paul here lays out the stakes. If you really believe that your behavior, God looks at you and goes, wow, you made church 38 out of 52 times. Do you know how much that is over the average? Welcome into my kingdom. No. If that's even remotely true, the death of God's precious son was a waste, was a waste and had no purpose. And so I want, I want to say it as, as drastically as I can because I don't think I can say it drastically enough. Either Christ is everything for you or he's nothing. There's no in between. He's not just a helper. If you can get acceptance from God by being a good person, Christ went to the cross, suffered, and died for no purpose. And so what Paul is saying is that we, if we could save ourselves, Christ's death is pointless. It means nothing. If we realize we can't save ourselves, Christ's death will mean everything to us. And we will spend this life following and serving him, which brings our life into line with the gospel. And it's worth noting that everything we just spent some time on was Paul's response to Peter's hypocrisy. That's what verses 15 through 21 are, are Paul going, all right, Peter, he doesn't just lambast him for what he did. He says, this is what's wrong with your thinking. This is where you're missing the mark, and this is why what you did has such serious consequences. You acted like you needed to be made presentable for God when those folks came and told you that. 
Here's the problem with that is verses 15 through 21. And so he called him out. And by way of review, I want to call ourselves out, but this is as good a time, Jason, to grab some guys. And like I said, someone gives you something, it's going to be different, but you'll be okay. While they do that, I want to close out with just a little bit of application on how we think, okay? I want to make sure that we've got simple, clear concepts that we can leave here from, because what Paul says is as we grab these concepts, we will have our lives change. First one, calling ourselves out, nobody, nobody, nobody is accepted by God, thank you, based on their own performance. Nobody, nobody is accepted by God based on their own performance. And so again, I want to be clear with anybody that is in this room that might be new, that might not have heard much of this teaching, if you believe that when you get to heaven and God says, well, why should I let you in? And you say, well, you know what? I, I'm telling you right now, that's not the answer that will work. Nobody is accepted by God on the basis of their own performance. And so, hear me when I say this, the problem we have in living in line with the gospel is that we have a really hard time believing that we are completely accepted. And you say, well, Steve, why do you think we have a really hard time believing that we're truly 100% accepted because nobody else does that. Nowhere else in our life are we 100% accepted without our performance. Do you believe that he could love you just as you are and not as you should be? We live like we have to earn God's approval rather than really believing in the depths of our being that Jesus has already done this for us. See this one? We will find ourselves judging the people around us quickly when we get this one wrong. We will not talk to people from a position of humility. We will talk to people from a position of us being better than them when we don't get this one. And it can very much put us in the position of judge, which is not in line with the gospel at all. Calling ourselves out, number two, when we try to earn God's approval through our own performance, we are sinning. Ooh, that's a strong word, Steve. Mm-hmm. Yep. So when we lose the gospel, and if I think I can earn God's approval through my own efforts, it's not just wrong. It's not just wrong-headed. It's sinful. And we try to do this all the time. Paul says to stop. Don't make the error Peter did, trusting in your own righteousness rather than what Jesus did. There's a small verse, small passage in Romans 15 where Paul says this, and, and, I, and I hope you're able to just bring it to mind when you think. When you hear people say, well, I think that's a sin, or, well, that's a sin, or that's a sin, I know that's a sin, and you hear that. I want alarm bells to go off in your head. In Romans 15, Paul says, whatever does not come from faith is sin. Whatever does not come from faith is sin. So whatever is not birthed out of the fact that you are free, not condemned, you are justified before Christ, and the life I now live is based on the Son of God who gave himself for me and loved me. Anything that we do that is not in line with that is sin. And so when, when you find ourselves going, well, categories and... No, no, no. The Bible says that you could do the most wonderful thing in the world. Heal the entire world from cancer. If you do it for the wrong reason, it's sin. We don't like that because we like to just think, well, everyone else thinks it's good, so it's probably good, right? 
No, no. If it doesn't come from faith, it's sin. Dig into Romans 15 on your own time if you like to see that even built out some more. And calling ourselves out, we need to get the order right. This is the last point before we celebrate communion together. Paul's saying that things go in this order. This is what he's saying. He's saying you put your faith in Christ, you're accepted by God. Then, by God's Spirit, you do good works. The false teachers were putting it the other way. You put your faith in Christ, you do good works, then you're accepted by God. Which is it? It might seem like a small difference, but it is the biggest difference in the world. Do we put our faith in Christ and find acceptance and then do good works, or do we believe and do good works and then get accepted by God? Paul says, it's the first. So, bring us back to our point. So many things tempt us to make our relationship to God and others about anything but Jesus. It needs to be called out, and it mostly needs to be called out in our own hearts. And so one of our greatest problems is that we believe the gospel, but we live as if we don't. We live as if it wasn't true. We believe we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ, but we live as if we need Jesus plus our own efforts in order to be saved. And Paul is telling us to not just believe that we're saved by grace through faith, but to live that way too. That's the challenge here. Yes, beautiful, amazing truth that you're justified. Live that way. And he explains what that looks like, specifically in verse 20 and 21. And so I love it when we have a passage where we can tell that, 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 it's, that it's easy for us to drift away from making it all about Jesus. We know that it's easy to do that. Jesus knew that we would always be in a place where we're tempted to forget. And that's why we have communion. And so today in communion, we're just reminded again. Why do we keep doing this? Because we need the reminder. We need the reminder. Why did Jesus command it? Because we need the reminder. We can never have the reminder enough. What reminder is that? That we are crucified with Christ. And he died for a purpose. And when we go back to the law as a way of measuring up, Paul says, he died for no purpose. And that should break our hearts when we hear Paul say that. And so Jesus, he was with the disciples. He was explaining to his disciples what was going to happen to him. And they all went, uh. I mean, it really, it's comical when you read the Gospels of how much they didn't get when Jesus said things to them. But he was explaining this is what's going to happen. I'm going to go, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be, I'm going to be raised again in three days. And this breaking of the bread and drinking of the cup was his way of explaining and showing and making sure they constantly went back to that as the most preeminent thing to happen in the world. And so when he'd given thanks, the Bible says he broke the bread, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. It's for you. He loved himself and gave himself for us. Do this in remembrance of me. In that same passage, it says, in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant. What new covenant? The old covenant represented the law. The old covenant was, hey, God's explaining to you what it means to be righteous. The new covenant in Jesus' blood. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. While the musicians and singers come on up, let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I confess that even as I read your word and I get to Galatians and I get to chapter 2 and I get to the middle of the chapter, I'm just, I just read like I'm reading almost any other book. And what was actually going on here doesn't impact me that much. But I pray today that each and every one of us has been filled with the knowledge that what Peter fell prey to is something that we also can fall prey to and do fall prey to, that there is more than just you. And so as we leave here today, as we've celebrated communion together, as we've remembered your broken body and the blood that was shed on the cross, may we remember the importance. May we be a people who when we see in our own hearts that we're seeking acceptance through other things besides the cross of Jesus Christ, May we turn around and run the other way, Lord. May we call ourselves out on it. Help us to not be people who are waving the MRI at people, telling people how great it is and how much it's healed us when that is just a lie. Help us to understand from your word how to look at your word, how to look at what you've given, and to live in line with the gospel that we have been justified by faith. I praise you for this time. I praise you even now for the song that we sing. In Jesus' name, amen.